for the week of March 3rd, 2016, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. In this episode, the latest on the U.S. government's R&D strategy to support clean energy breakthroughs. How is it working? We'll get some on-the-ground impressions from the ARPA-E summit. Then an update on the drama surrounding Exelon's $7 billion bid to acquire Pepco. Is the deal dead? We'll end by talking about a WTO ruling against India's local content requirements for solar. How will it impact the country's burgeoning solar market? In Boston, I'm Stephen Lacey, GTM's managing editor. I'm joined by Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions in Washington, D.C., as always. Hello, Catherine. Hi, we're missing you not being here. The entire city? Yes, <laughs> of course. Jigger Shah of Generate Capital is in New York City. Hello, Jigger. Hey, how you doing? Pretty good. Joining the gang this week from San Francisco is our senior grid reporter, Jeff St. John. Jeff is a very prolific writer on all things grid edge. He and Catherine were at the ARPA-E Summit this week, and we've invited Jeff on the show to talk about the edgiest of the grid edge stuff uh, that was talked about there. Jeff, welcome. Uh, hi, Stephen. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. Quick background here. ARPA-E is, of course, the government agency founded in 2007 to support R&D and cutting-edge energy technologies. It was first funded in 2009. The agency holds a yearly event outside of Washington in order to showcase its investments and bring thought leaders together to discuss the future of energy. So that's what we're talking about. It gives us an opportunity to cover those themes on the podcast, too. So, Jeff, over to you first. Um, mm-hmm. ARPA-E always releases this tally of its investments and in private follow-on funding. So far, it's spent $1.3 billion on grants to support companies in lab-scale projects. This year, the agency said those companies received $1.25 billion in private follow-on funding, which effectively doubles the private funding since 2014. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's cumulative, by the way. Uh, there was about $400 million, uh, at least as far as I could count, in 2015. So, uh, yeah, it's been growing uh, regularly. And according to uh, Energy Secretary uh, Ernest Moniz, uh, in his discussion on stage, uh, he'd like to see it be a billion a year in, in grant funding at least. That's what is called for, I think, in, uh, in the president's budget. And, uh, of course, he, he noted that uh, a lot will depend on who's president next year. That's right. Sure. Yeah, a um, billion. That's a, that's a big number. So, Catherine, to you just quickly, like, could the agency do a billion dollars a year? Oh, yeah, I definitely think they could. They get thousands and thousands of applications for every, well, hundreds for every one that they accept. So there's plenty out there to fund. I don't I don't think that's an issue at all. Um, they could just bring in more of what they call the ARPA-E fellows who come in for their four, for a four-year stint. And each of those people gets to pick a, about two projects to work on because each project takes a little while. So first you have to pitch it, get the other folks to accept that it's an important project. Then you have to put out the funding opportunity. And then you have to go through applications for the funding. Um, and so those folks each get two projects over four years. But if there are a lot of very smart people out there you could bring into the program to have them run programs. You were on a mission, Jeff, to talk to a lot of the companies that ARPA-E is supporting. What were some of the more interesting companies that have uh, gotten follow-on funding that you're tracking? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, uh, there are a number. Uh, Transform got about $70 million. Uh, they raised it from KKR in June, and 
they uh, are developing gallium arsenide semiconductor technologies. This is, I think, uh, the the next wave in more efficient, uh, thus smaller, thus uh, more you know uh, useful uh, you know uh, in- inverters and electric motors, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Smart Wires and Varentech are two companies that have a uh, a common genesis. Uh, Dr. Deepak Devan, uh, now with Georgia Tech, uh, developed some of the power electronics uh, devices uh, and, and concepts that both companies are putting to use on different parts of the grid. Smart Wires, uh, which kind of looks at transmission systems, raised about $30.8 million in June. And they have rolled out their second product, uh, a more advanced and heavier and more expensive version of the kind of lightweight helicopter deployable device that they stick out on transmission lines that kind of chokes off, or in the case of the new device, kind of amps up the uh, the flow of power along transmission lines, or kind of you know the, the lower voltage transmission lines. And this is a kind of solution to congestion um, that that could be pretty useful. And we've got some other folks approaching that from the software side that I'll get into later. Um, and the other one is Varentech, and they raised 13 million in December. And uh, they, they work on a lot of stuff on the low-voltage distribution side of things, managing uh, volt-var control or conservation voltage reduction, um, enhancing uh, those programs, and managing the strangeness that happens when solar uh, rooftop solar starts to kind of backfeed and, and raise voltage on local distribution circuits, among other things that that kind of technology can do. So there's so. – Jeff, there's a lot of incremental – you know, improvements that we've seen in solar, wind, renewables in the last 20 years. You know, I'm curious whether you think that RPE should be about more than that, though, right? I mean, there's oh. a lot of folks who yeah. sort of say that, you know, we can't reach our Paris agreements with the existing technologies that we have today and that we need a whole new set of technologies. Or I'm just trying to figure out whether we're really reaching breakthroughs. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, the energy Department of Energy put out a tweet that basically said, here are four technologies to watch. One is like fast-growing crops for bioenergy. One is solar-powered motorcycles in a box. One's yeah. like laser-guided methane. All of that does not seem transformational to me. Well, I, I think they pick that stuff because it's nifty, and you can go to the floor and look at it and say, "Woo!" You know, I, I call it everything from sorghum to you know fusion, uh, you know, and anything in between you can imagine. But you know, some of the stuff that I'm most interested in because it does seem to have uh, a bigger kind of bang for buck capacity to make big changes is on the software side. Um, one is uh, right out of Boston University. This, this is a company that I believe is part of ARPA-E's Genie uh, Green Electricity Network Integration Program. These are uh, some of the acronyms we are getting used to. And uh, I spoke to Pablo Ruiz, who is the uh, president and CTO of New Grid. It's a startup spun out of the Boston University work. Um, he was describing stuff uh, like parallel computing and reformulated mixed integer programming. Um, uh, a DOE guy, a commercialization guy, Eric DeRosier, mentioned Garobi optimization. Um, I wrote these things down faithfully. I hope they mean something to some of our listening audience. But the, the solution that all this math is, is aimed toward is figuring out how to use something that's already out on the transmission grid, and that's circuit breakers. These circuit breakers sit out there. They're set to you know, break, to open a circuit if something's going to blow up or you know, if necessary, and they're set seasonally usually. But they're SCADA connected and they can do a lot more. They could actually optimize the flow of power through transmission systems is what you know, uh, Pablo Ruiz says. But the problem is that uh, ISOs and RTOs, the grid operators, don't have the software smart enough to figure out how opening and closing a bunch of discrete points, uh, you know, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of them, 
is going to affect power flow so they just don't do it. And this is the problem that NewGrid says it's solving and has solved, in fact, in partnership with PJM. Um, I think PJM hasn't you know, operationalized this by any means, but they kind of tested some of the circuit breaker openings and closings against um, a typical day. And, uh, hey, they work. You know, we're talking like 30 to 50 percent kind of congestion reduction as a result of being able to just tap these circuit breakers in a way that, you know, the old math can't support. I mean, just to be clear on this new grid technology, I've been using a technology that's similar to that since 1997 to remotely control diesel generators. So this is not new technology. It just happens to be 98% cheaper today because of internet technologies and cell phone technologies by which to communicate. So before it was like $30,000 per box. Now it's like $300 per box. But like, but you know, that's not transformational in the technology. It's transformational in the business case. And that comes from regulatory changes that Catherine's, you know, helped push through on DR markets and other markets within PJM by which to get compensated for these things. So Jigger, I think that RPE actually does both and has a pretty good balance. And Jeff, you can correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but um, when when um, they're talking about bold ideas that change the world, they say, if it works, will it matter? But I met with one of the program managers at RPE who said, all right, what is the breakthrough that you're looking for? What is the technical nugget? I came to RPE this year in a very different way than I had before, because before I was kind of just walking around gawking at everything, just being filled with interesting ideas. This year, I was with an entrepreneur, and my job was to take him to RPE, and, and their theme this year was celebrating the energy entrepreneur, which was pretty cool. Um, my job was to take him around, and he has, is using what I would call already existing technologies, but in a completely different way, in a completely different venue, and with a different business model jigger. So trying to figure out, are there people he could work with either at RPE or at the labs, universities, incubators, companies, because there are a lot of large companies there? And I would say, yes, there there are. I think that there are both things. There are both really new, innovative ideas that people have never come up with before, but that there are also new ways of looking at things that will really leapfrog the incremental progress we've made. Yeah, look, I fully support RPE. Let's just be clear. Like, I think what they're doing is extraordinary. And I do think that a lot of these technologies would not get scale-up capital or validation capital from the private sector, or from venture capitalists. And so it is necessary for the government to step in and provide capital. I just think that the RPE conference that I'm you know, like experiencing, you know, remotely here via Twitter and and news feeds um, is, you know, is is not highlighting the transformational stuff that I think Bill Gates is talking about. It's really highlighting incremental progress that I was talking about. So one of the things you were looking at, Jeff, were some up and coming energy efficiency technologies that focus on personal comfort that uh, can help reduce HVAC use in buildings. So rather than focused on the focusing on the built environment, research groups and early stage companies are using these technologies to cool and heat appendages, uh, yeah. developing chairs to make people more comfortable. What what does yeah. this personal comfort sector look like? Right, right. Well, in ARPA-EEs, it's delivering efficient local thermal amenities you know it, it's basically heating and cooling the person um, and it has you know it includes fans on your desktop and foot warmers under your desk it includes uh, fancy office chairs with fans and heaters in them that can run on a battery charge 
And now they're working on wirelessly charging those things out of that roller pad that you put under your office chair so you don't have to even plug it in when you leave work. Um, and the basic idea is that built environment moves a ton of air around and heats and cools a ton of air that's never being occupied. Most people just sit in one place or they move in groups, you know, to one place or another. Um, and there's no reason why you should waste all that energy heating and cooling air when you could just make them feel more comfortable. And at UC Berkeley, the Center for the Built Environment has been doing this stuff for years. They started on stuff like a actually, you know, a setup, you know, office cubicle with heating and cooling, but that was way too expensive. So what they've turned to are these, you know, low power electrical devices. And if you can make someone feel like they're at 72 degrees, you can actually keep the office at between kind of like the high 60s and the low 80s. And that dead band, as uh, Professor uh, Aaron's put it at UC Berkeley, can save five to seven percent of a building's HVAC energy load per Fahrenheit degree temperature difference or something like that. The trick is, of course, getting people to adopt these and making them come in at the right price. And finally, serve the uh, issue of comfort rather than emphasizing the energy efficiency. Yeah, so I don't I, know, Jeff, if you saw Jeff, if you saw the UC San Diego Center for Wearable Sensors booth, that was really cool because it was all built into clothing, so it was just printed on thermally adapted text, adaptive textiles with thermoelectric cells and flexible batteries, just printed right on the T-shirts. It was pretty interesting. Interesting. I did not see that one. I did see a nanostructure uh, kind of uh, uh, thing out of University of Maryland. Um, very complicated description for clothing that basically I think. Uh, expands when it gets cold and kind of contracts when it gets warm and thus uh, allows more heat transfer or not. So I love the the personal heating and cooling and the comfort space. I'm curious whether you are saying that the model for this is as California uh, mandates net zero energy homes by 2020, right, and net zero energy commercial buildings by 2030, whether you think that that is going to be the the primary way that we actually heat and cool facilities. I have no idea. I, I guess it can fall anywhere between, uh, you know, uh, President Carter asking us all to put on sweaters or something like, uh, you know, a mass adoption of a new, you know, uh, high tech wizardry. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't see it dominating, Jigger. Do you? I mean, I feel like you have so many large legacy companies putting hundreds of millions or tens of millions of dollars behind sophisticated building energy management systems and um, more efficient HVAC systems and so forth, that like the momentum is really toward meeting these building codes and focusing on the built environment rather than personal comfort. We have to dream bigger. I mean, look, I mean, we have phase change materials that have been around for decades. The passive solar energy industry has put down guidelines since the 1950s and 60s, actually since the days of the Greeks. Um, you know, 3,000 years ago. And basically, like, what that requires is a thermal mass. So there's companies out of the, uh, Scandinavia now that makes a dining room table that actually absorbs heat and releases heat as, you know, temperatures change in the house. If you could actually get sufficient amounts of thermal mass into these homes, you could downsize the HVAC system by 80%. So you really think that people are going to use these en masse? You envision this to be the dominant way to encourage energy efficiency in buildings and homes? Well, it's a dominant way to to reduce the amount of times you need to like. So the problem is basically that right now we want to cool the entire house from 85 degrees to 70 degrees in like 10 minutes. So you basically have to create this huge air conditioning system to do that. However, if you had all these phase change materials and thermal masses in the home, then and these personal comfort 
devices, you could actually do an 80% smaller HVAC unit that's always on, that's basically you know regulating temperature in very like mild ways, similar to a heat pump, um, and use much less energy, and then actually have these thermal masses for much less cost. Um, regulate the temperature in the house, right? I mean, and this is these are principles from the 1960s. We're just using 21st century phase change materials to do it. Catherine and, and Jeff, I want to get your impressions on how successful we think ARPA E has been thus far. So they've they were first funded in 2009, as Jeff mentioned. They've got over well over a billion dollars in cumulative grants that have gone out to companies. Um, They've got private follow-on funding that has uh, virtually matched those grants. So that seems pretty successful. Uh, at the same time, we still don't know how successful many of these investments are. It's going to take a long time for us to truly understand how well their strategy has worked. They are doing some incremental stuff and some groundbreaking stuff. On the whole, Catherine, we'll start with you first. Mm-hmm. How successful do you think RPE has been in the the few years that it's had funding? Well, I think it's been enormously successful. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of it. So, and this is in two ways. One way is just in creating the community. So just going from the RPE conference a few years ago and going every year, you get a larger and larger community. Those are not necessarily people who have directly received funding from RPE, but who have partnered in some way with the other partners of RPE. So it's created this really rich community so that you have not just, um, you know, you have some early stage funders there, but then you also have a lot of incubators like Cyclotron Road that's connected to Lawrence Berkeley Lab that really helps connect the dots for entrepreneurs. You have, I just feel like there are a lot of flowers that have been blooming as a result of RPE. And the other issue is that you're really starting to see big companies come to the table and realize that this is a brain trust. This whole program allows for really thinking outside the box and really putting some some concentrated funds into solving problems that otherwise may not ever be solved. And Jeff, I'll give you the last word on this. How successful do you think ARPA-E has been? And has there have there been any significant changes over time in the companies that you've seen supported? Um, and have you seen the companies that have gotten follow-on funding actually start to make a difference in the industry? A lot of the projects that I found most interesting weren't centered around primary technologies like battery chemistries or uh, thermal conversion efficiencies. They're more secondary technologies that are unlocking the ability of these primary technologies to get out into the market. I, you know, a couple of examples, folks in the uh, AMPT program, um, they're working on better energy storage uh, management and protection. They are uh, putting together physics-based models of batteries uh, down to the cell level to replace the kind of, you know, uh, uh, figure out what the battery is, compare it to something else, and then try to guess at how well it's doing compared to that model type approach. And once again, they're talking about, you know, tens, twenties percentage, you know, lifespan increase and better safety. This could maybe get batteries out to market. Some of these programs are really getting large-scale projects out. There's the Nodes Project, which I wrote about back in uh, January, Network Optimized Distributed Energy Systems Program, and that's involving utilities and grid operators and big companies like GE, um, and they're putting out real grid projects. 
And who knows what's going to come out of that, but it could be very interesting. Jeff St. John is our senior reporter covering grid issues, focused on the grid edge. Uh, He's just got fantastic writing on storage, on software, on grid integration issues, regulation. Follow his stuff at greentechmedia.com. Jeff, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks, Stephen. On to the second segment. One of the biggest utility mergers in U.S. history is on the brink of collapse. For the last two years, Exelon has been trying to acquire the Mid-Atlantic distribution utility Pepco for $6.9 billion. The merger has faced intense local opposition in Washington, D.C., where citizens and activists fear that Exelon will raise rates to help pay for its struggling nuclear fleet and stifle renewable energy development. For background on the battle around this merger, listen to our show from August 28th of last year, and that was when the D.C. Public Service Commission rejected the deal and asked Exelon to come up with a plan for promoting renewables and efficiency in the district while also minimizing additional costs to ratepayers. Every other state that Pepco operates in around the region has approved the deal, but without D.C.'s approval, this deal will fall through. So in August, D.C. Mayor Mariel Bowser indicated she would support the merger, but now the situation has flipped. Regulators want to pass the revised deal uh, that was brought to the table by Exelon, but the mayor, the district attorney, and D.C.'s ratepayer advocates say that Exelon hasn't done enough to ensure that it won't raise rates, and now the process has stalled once again. Is this the death knell for the Exelon-Pepco merger? Jigger, what's your read of the situation? Well, I have to say that, you know, in our previous episode, we had Anya Schoolman on. And, you know, she basically is doing all of this stuff for free. She has like 30 activists that are like connected to 3,000 other people in the city that are just doing old-fashioned grassroots organizing. I mean, until two or three weeks ago, this was a done deal. The mayor had cut a deal. The Public Service Commission was going to rubber stamp it. Even when the Public Service Commission uh, announcement came out on uh, this week, you know, it was it it was like, oh, this is a backdoor way of approving the deal. This whole thing has changed so fast, and it's all because of public opinion against Pepco and Exelon merging over the last like two days. Um, My latest sources are telling me that they're negotiating a settlement right now between the mayor's office. Basically, there's this guy. Um, from Troutman Sanders, who basically has paid some web services company to erase all uh, mention of him on the web. That's like sort of, you know, like negotiating this deal in secret. Uh, his name is Raymond uh, Ray or something. And, uh, and it's it's this is so full of intrigue. Maybe this will be a James Bond movie one day. <laughs> we energy Bond, geeks can only hope. Yeah. James Bond meets the Public Service Commission. Uh, yeah, I, I, I reached out to Anya about it because, of course, she's been the hero in all this, as you say. And she really characterized it as a ratepayer revolt. And she said, you know, D.C. is rallying around re- affordable, reliable and sustainable energy. And there's a consensus that the local solar and the way that they're going is the way to do it. And it didn't seem that Exelon was really presenting that for them. So that was her take on it. Of course, she said, we cannot possibly think it's over unless Exelon says they're going to you know, get their toys and leave the sandbox. So I think we still have we have some time to wait, right, Jigger? Yeah, well, Exelon's CEO said on a recent investor call that they would abandon the deal if it isn't approved by March, by early March. 
But now we have this March 11th deadline or March 14th. Somewhere around mid-March, there is going to be another deal presented. So it's not totally dead. It's like it's like the it's like the uh, uh, Princess Bride. It's mostly it's... dead, but <laughs> not completely dead. <laughs> so are we giving a little bit too much credit to the local activists here? Because this seems to be just hinging on Mariel Bowser's concern that Exelon is not putting tens of millions of dollars uh, in in cushion money to prevent rate, no, rate is, hikes. No, Stephen. Like this. So so there's a couple points you're making here, right? One is that. I agree with you that many of our wins, whether it's the coal industry or, you know, who's really suffering from a reduction in price of met coal, right, not thermal coal, or whether it's this Exelon Pepco merger, that there's a lot of changes afoot because of technology improvements in renewable energy and big data that we just talked about from ARPA-E, et cetera. And so we're fundamentally undercutting the utility business model, which is creating pressure here. But in this particular case, there was a well-crafted deal that was done to undermine the local population by the mayor's office, which basically said we're going to give a certain pot of money to residential low-income ratepayers to buy them off and buy the people councils off, the people's council off, and we're not going to touch commercial rates. So commercial rates can go through the roof. We're not going to touch um, other people's rates, just low income. And then when the deal got done through the public service commission. Um, it wasn't exactly what the mayor had already sort of gave away the the farm on, you know, in terms of this deal. So the Office of the People's Council said, like, not only was this a bad deal to begin with, you railroaded us on the one little piece that we did get. And so so I think the mayor's office at the People's Council went along with it, would have said, whatever, it's easy to buy me off. I'm happy to get bought off. But when the People's Council came again, out against it, she was like, oh, my God, I'm exposed here. And I'm going to look like the big bad mayor who's in bed with Exelon. I better come out against this. Now, there are worries within the mayor's office as well that this is going to seem anti-business. And uh, No, 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 no. Literally every single building owner in D.C. hates this deal. They know that if this goes through, they're going to have 4 to 5% rate increases for the next five years. It's already been predicted. The, the, the building owners, everyone else, even the federal government is leery about this deal because the federal government owns a lot of real estate in D.C. who's going to see huge rate increases. Have they actually weighed in on the matter? No, because it's so political. How, how do you but, know that they have concerns? Because we've talked directly to the GSA multiple times and they are very concerned, but they're more concerned about like whether this would set a precedent of them coming into all these different mergers across the country if they entered into this one. What's the differentiator here? Uh, is it the activists then in D.C.? Is it the local opposition? Because this was approved by other public utilities commissions that have authority over this merger. But D.C. is different. Is, is it the activists that were? Well, the- you, can never, you can never say for sure. But my sense is if the activists didn't speak up, then the mayor and, and Exelon would have figured out a way to ram this through. And they I don't still think, can. I mean, this deal is not dead, right? Like, oh well, Anya there's... still thinks they're going to. I mean, they're. She thinks that they're in exclusive negotiations, and that they're going to come out with something that basically tries to save the deal tomorrow. So we'll see, right? But I, you know, I, I, um, I definitely think that the activists played a big role here. You can never say whether they're definitive, but you know, I definitely think they played a very important role here. Yeah, and I ask Anya if it if this kind of process can be replicated because I'm thinking, you know, where other states that are in similar situations, how do you create that momentum? 
And she just said, you know, people just have to get so involved with the PSC process. And I would just say most people don't. Most people have no idea what their regulators do at all. Um, so it takes educating people. It takes the resources and funders to step up and decide that clean energy is um, is a priority and it's their goal. So D.C., because it's, it, it's a finite area, and honestly, D.C. is constantly having to fight for everything. Of course, they don't have voting rights, and they are like, you know, in a – they're one of those taxation without representation places where they're every single part of their budget is controlled by Congress. So where they can have power, I think they are probably more educated and more willing to take it than a, a, a typical municipality might be. Lots of drama here, perhaps more to come. We'll see what the final deal looks like and whether the mayor, the district attorney, and the uh, chief advocate for ratepayers come around on this one. Um, we'll know perhaps by this week, Jigger, or next week? Um, I don't know. I think, um, Catherine, I think you said the 11th probably, right? But I, I think I think Anya told me the 14th. Yeah, I think yeah. it's the 14th. Yeah, I've heard either the 11th or the 14th. All right, we'll keep you posted. Uh, let's finish the show now. Our final segment is on trade tensions between India and the U.S. Last week, the World Trade Organization ruled that India's local content requirements for solar cells and modules violate international trade laws. The ruling came after the U.S. complained that India's domestic requirements prevent American companies from shipping product into the country. India has a very ambitious solar target of 100 gigawatts by 2022. Some environmentalists say America is hurting India by challenging the content requirements set by the national government. But free trade advocates say that India needs all the cheap solar panels it can get in order to meet that target. And that means not limiting procurement to domestic panels. Jigger, you were a very vocal opponent of U.S. tariffs on Chinese-made solar panels. I'm assuming you agree that local content requirements like India's are also a bad thing? Well, I think it's important for folks to, you know, sort of understand the nuances of this just because it really does matter. So this is this is something that is consistent with um, the trade case against um, Ontario's solar program as well in Canada, right? So Japan and the EU filed a complaint with the WTO about Ontario's local content rules as well. There isn't really a problem with preferring local content. So you can provide, let's say India could say, we're going to provide an additional half rupee per kilowatt hour, one rupee per kilowatt hour subsidy for domestic content. We see the same thing in like Minnesota where 10K is getting you know, an extra bonus subsidy for being there, or Washington State has an extra feed-in tariff uh, subsidy from the state for locally made inverters, right? So that's not what violates the WTO. What violates WTO is when India or Ontario says anything that's not made here is banned, right? So I think we need to be careful about saying that this was really a U.S. versus India and emerging markets and Paris, you know, Paris deal. And I mean, I think people are blowing it out of proportion. So I did a little bit of research on the stimulus bill in 2009 that had a Buy American provision. Now, the Buy American Act was passed in 1933, so it's been around for a really long time. But there was a, a bit of an uproar about public buildings and public works having to have iron, steel and manufacturing goods that were produced in the U.S. But the way it was worded really did give a lot of latitude toward 
board being able to use components and subcomponents that were not manufactured in the United States so that it didn't block out anything that wasn't. Um, it just wanted more of those to be produced in the U.S. And a, and a higher percentage. And it really was limited to public buildings and public works. So I think there is a way to do it that really helps um, a country's uh, manufacturing base without precluding products from other places that can bring more competition and lower prices to, yeah. to the product. Yeah, and that's what India is going to do now, right? They're going to just apply these content requirements to public buildings, which allows them to keep those rules in place. But for any other uh, projects, they, the content requirements don't apply. Interestingly, most of the contracts we're seeing signed are being signed through states, None of these states have local content requirements. So I just want to make sure it's clear that like India could still prefer local manufacturers by saying that anyone who wins the auction for these utility scale projects um, gets an extra bonus subsidy um, if you have high percentages of local content. So that's not illegal under the WTO, or at least hasn't been adjudicated. What's been adjudicated is you can't just ban other foreign supplies of, of, of product. Yeah, so I'm just confused as to why India took that route in the first place, if there's precedent for this. Because, you know, they've got unsophisticated local manufacturers who lobbied the crap out of them and said, hey, you know, we really want you to, to you know, do it this way, right? Because you can imagine then they couldn't decide on what the extra subsidy would be, right? So, so they said, well, let's just ban, you know, outside folks. Um, but if they do want to, like, go back in and fix this, then they can fix it that way. One of the things I can't figure out is why environmental groups have been so critical of this WTO ruling. I saw one activist writing on the Huffington Post talking about how it would dismantle India's climate goals, and there just didn't seem to be any logic to it. And if we're really trying to scale India's solar market to 100 gigawatts, which is, which is extremely difficult but definitely possible – they're going to need as much solar as possible imported from around the world. So I just do not understand the environmental criticism of this. Like this seems to be good for making solar cheaper in India and getting them closer to achieving their ambitious targets. Well, several of those environmental groups called me after the ruling. Um, and, and, you know, like after I talked to them, I think they better understood the concepts. I mean, I think in general – they just saw this as black and white, where the U.S. was picking on India when that's not the case. It's They're just picking on – I mean, the thing is about this green technology is that if everyone's right and we're going to spend an extra $15 trillion on deploying these types of technologies to save off the worst impacts of climate change, this is a really big deal, right? And so we can't have folks just sort of willy-nilly, you know, sort of winging it um, – on trade policy, because if we let this go, then someone else is going to do this. And then suddenly we have chaos and the private sector has a hard time figuring out what the rules of the game are. So we do need to like be a little more structured and organized about this. And so um, I do think that WTO plays a really important role around regulating commerce so that the companies in our sector can understand where they should make investments and how they you know, might be able to, to keep costs down for all the countries around the world. And let's be clear, India has very little solar manufacturing capacity thus far. So if it wants to hit many gigawatts of installations over the coming years, every year, it, uh, 
it can't rely on its domestic manufacturing base. So supporting domestic manufacturers through public projects seems to be the, a, a good compromise here. Let's tell our listeners something they do not know as we wrap up the show. Jigger, what's your story this week? So uh, this week, uh, Aubrey McClendon passed away um, from an apparent, I don't know, the news reports sort of call it a suicide, but I'm not sure it's been um, it's unclear yet. It's labeled unclear. that way. But, um, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of people who, who know him as the former CEO of Chesapeake Energy and, you know, one of the real pioneers in the shale gas revolution in the United States. Um, but what they may not know is that he really is the person that's responsible for scaling up the Beyond Coal campaign for the Sierra Club. And, you know, when when Carl Pope stumbled on to this, um, you know, interesting legal strategy by which to shut down coal plants in 2005, um, it was Aubrey and, and other senior executives at Chesapeake that gave $26 million from 2007 through 2012 to scale up uh, um, the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign. And I, I think he should, you know, he and his family should be very proud of, you know, what he was able to accomplish there. But when that news came out that the Sierra Club was working with the natural gas industry, members were completely pissed off. Well, it goes to what we just talked about, right? There's a purity test here. But my sense is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Catherine, what's your story this week? Yeah, so this is sort of the opposite of ARPA-E, which is, you know, things that are just being invented to advanced energy economy, where my company is a member of this organization. Um, and they released a report today, um, a market report on advanced energy markets um, over the last five years. And so the global revenue global revenue in advanced in- industry um, is $1.4 trillion. It's as big as the fashion industry, which to me was significant. Um, the U.S. advanced energy market is two. Hundred billion, which is double revenue from beer sales, um, and almost the same as consumer electronics. It's really moving up to consumer electronics, and a lot of this is due to the costs of solar and wind and other technologies coming down, um, and also doing the right public policies. So every single sector, electric generation, delivery, um, buildings, transportation, industry, all of those grew. The only two sectors that didn't really see increases were fuel production, which is biofuels, because that took a huge hit from the ethanol industry dropping 33%, and then fuel delivery. So you know, hydrogen fueling stations, natural gas fueling stations, those also didn't really grow. But all the other segments grew. So I thought it was really interesting after being at RPE to then go to the AEE member event and have this report um, released, which you can get on aee.net to see how all the sectors are doing. A couple weeks back, Bloomberg Business Week ran this cover story with Elon Musk and Warren Buffett wrestling. Did you guys see this this cover story? It was... um, you know, an illustration of the conflict between Solar City and NV Energy over net metering in Nevada. And it turns out that during the Nevada battle over net metering, Elon Musk did in fact call Warren Buffett to express his displeasure with NV Energy's push to slash net metering. NV Energy is, uh, of course, owned by Buffett's company, Berkshire Hathaway. Buffett confirmed this during an interview with CNBC this week, and he, he fired a shot across the bow. And he said that Musk, quote, would like the million people to subsidize the 17,000 solar customers just like the rest of Nevada is subsidizing his battery plant. So I was skeptical about Bloomberg's framing of the situation as two titans coming together and clashing, battling. But it turns out it's actually a fairly accurate description. 
I still don't believe it's accurate, though, Stephen. I mean, I think that, you know, like Warren Buffett's a hands-off manager. When he bought Envy Energy, the CEO of Envy Energy said that he hated distributed generation of all kinds, especially net metering. So, I mean, I still think Warren Buffett was hands-off. I mean, he just, you know, he just wasn't going to step in to change the policy of his CEO, but he doesn't do that for any of his companies. Yep. But I still think there's a rhetorical battle here brewing between two major figures in the industry. That is the end of our show, folks. You can get links to the stories that we discussed by going over to our show notes at greentechmedia.com. We love hearing from our listeners. You can send an email to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We enjoy hearing your suggestions for stories to cover, your feedback, your questions. We try to get to as many of them as we can. So please send send your emails. Uh, We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Overcast, any podcast app of your choice. So if you're not a subscriber, just grab one of those apps and you can find us on there. Um, Catherine, have a good week and weekend. Thanks. You too. We're supposed to get a big snow, so we'll see. I think we're about to get some up in Boston too. Jigger, you do the same. Have a good week and weekend. Thanks. Looking forward to it. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.